This is the 966 episode 115. Hello, Richard. We are back. That's back like, in uh, our normal saddles. It seems a little strange, doesn't it? Because we've had a little hiatus here because we didn't do segments when we were in Riyadh for the Global Health Span Summit. We just did interviews with participants. Um, yeah, well, the, yeah, the so, good thing is nothing has happened in the meantime, in the two weeks that we've been <laughs> so Actually, that was one of my first comments in my one big thing, when, whenever we get there. Unbelievable. Oh, I lost you. Sorry, we're already, you know what, 30 seconds in, a little bit of technical difficulties, a random mute like, on my mic. Solution I'm, go. I'm not used to it. Um, yeah, I mean, we were we were talking a little bit about this before, but it's sort of like if you're doing a sports podcast or you follow a team and do a sports podcast, you have an a regular season playoffs, and then you have a long off season. And for Saudi these days, it's just all playoffs. <laughs> it's just all <laughs> playoff games. There is so much going on. There is no way that we can get all, get to all of it this week um, for episode 115, but we're going to try to get caught up with roughly nine top storylines from the last few weeks since we did our last full episode. We will also be featuring a very terrific conversation with Dr. Basma Al-Buhairan, Managing Director for the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution of Saudi Arabia. A really cool discussion with Dr. Basma coming up here shortly. I just want to say Fourth Industrial Revolution to prove that I can actually say it because I, I sort of, I, I've, I tripped over it a couple of times when we were talking to Dr. Basma. Um, yes, really fascinating. Fascinating person, uh, you know, sort of doing some key things at an interesting time, you know, obviously Fourth Industrial Revolution. Technologies are critical to Saudi Arabia's effort to make it so, you know, this leap uh, forward. So uh, really, really good, timely conversation with Dr. Basma. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it, it, we, we talked about that. It's also very Saudi to have a, a number. And this isn't a Saudi thing, but it's a, a lot of times Saudis will put numbers in like Habibi. They'll put a seven in to get the pronunciation when they write it out. So it's sort of like that. It's C4IR. When you look at it, when you're reading it, it looks like care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. So it is hard to really to nail. And so you have a little bit of leeway on that. Um, yeah, it's been a few weeks since we we're back on our normal format here. So we'll, we will get into it shortly, but we have gotten that much time worth of feedback since we were off the air. This one is from Tarek on LinkedIn. Dear Lucian, I'm writing to express my heartfelt gratitude for your exceptional podcast, The 966. Your unwavering commitment to providing accurate and unbiased information about Saudi Arabia has profoundly enriched my understanding of the kingdom's intricate and ever-evolving landscape. It's also helping me understand what path I must pursue in my career. Looking forward to meeting you and Richard soon. Yeah, that was uh, that was nice. Thank you, Tarek. You hear that, Richard? That's uh, quite. The it's compliment. really nice. Tarek, I think Tarek is Tarek. Was Tarek based in Egypt? I feel like Tarek, I might have engaged with him at some point. He's he was he was moving to Saudi Arabia, but that is very nice and very kind. And it reminds me a little bit, um, you know, you know, we do the Sustig Review, which is the leading daily newsletter on Saudi Arabia. And I don't know how many people, have, you know, over the years, and we've been doing it for fifteen years, have come up and said this is just invaluable. You know, it was my window, and and it was a resource, and I check it every day, and it gave me you know, not only you know, an overview, but also a, a, a clue as to what is going on and in, in areas I need to pursue or dive deeper into is just great. And I, 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 there's echoes of that, and which is nice, because when, when Tarek is talking about this, he's just talking about the value of having a discussion. So that's that's very good psychic income for us. Thank you, Tarek. Very good psychic income. It is not the same Tarek that you're talking about. This is a uh, 
uh, Saudi that is not was not living in Egypt, but there was right. the other Tariq that was listening. We probably have more than a handful of Tariqs listening. If uh, I'm going to go out on a limb with that one. Yeah, just to echo what you said, Richard, what's really cool is when we were about to interview a guest and he or she is boning up on Saudi with the Sustig review right before our conversation <laughs> yes. using our newsletter as the sort of research material. So that's always really cool. <laughs> we hope more guests mention when they do that, because when they do, it's uh, pretty cool. This is from Abdul Rahman via WhatsApp. Love the episode you had with um, the Hevolution folks. I believe this might be the only initiative that the Saudis are pushing for with global impact without mentioning directly the vision and MBS. The entire episode was about making a difference globally. Yeah, I, that was a cool, I re- wanted to read that, Richard, because I think that was kind of cool. It's like, you know, everything is Vision 2030, His Royal Highness of Conference. He's obviously at the top of everything, and he is chairman of the Hevolution Foundation. But what Hevolution is doing and, you know, the leadership of Dr. Khan and uh, Royal Highness Princess Haya is sort of like a uh, an impact initiative that's going to affect 8 billion people. So, yeah, um, that episode did really well, and, and everyone seemed to love it. I agree. And I, I think he points out uh, what he points out is absolutely accurate. I think I, I think I referred to it as a moonshot. And the moonshot always makes you think of NASA. And yes, NASA was sort of US led, but it had global repercussions and 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 you know, meaning beyond just a you know national borders. And absolutely the Evolution Foundation is is, you know, fits that category. It's it's a global impact type of initiative. Mm-hmm. And lastly, Richard, we heard from our faithful, one of our most faithful listeners, Bill Connor this week, who is in Neom and traveling to Neom. And we got a pretty cool email from Bill with some awesome images and a few other things as he journeyed up there. So it was cool. Uh, thanks. Thanks for sending those, Bill. Those were, see if maybe we can drop them in this video, but they, they were really cool. Um, he's I should, uh, just a really cool dude. I should say, um, with regard to Bill Connor, um, I was in, when I was in Riyadh, I had, uh, dinner with a, a mutual friend actually some bill some of bill has entered, introduced us to and um and and this person has been a very senior person in a number of um institutions large organization both private sector and now moving into a, a large sort of pif fact adventure um and she was this person was talking about how amazingly good bill was at his job and Bill does media training. Uh, and, and this person said, you know, I mean, he's bar none, he's as good as anybody as they've seen. And, uh, and I know Bill is, is, is doing good business out there, but we should give him his props because he's really good as what he does. He's really good at what he does. He's been traveling there as much as I have, which is always an insane amount. So he, he mentioned he'd be home for, for Christmas. Um, I saw him out here in uh, St. Michael's a few months ago. The last time I seen, I've not been able to connect the dots in Riyadh. But um, did you wait? Did you get to see him in Riyadh or uh, you no, a connect? mutual friend, a mutual friend who is who knows the corporate business and knows media training, understands why it matters. And uh, was was you know sort of specifically discussing how um, uh, capable Bill was with mm-hmm. his with his business. Yeah, capable dude. 
Uh, please rate us and review us wherever you're listening to this or watching us on YouTube. Please, would be very helpful. We appreciate that and keep the feedback coming. It's always nice to hear from everybody. So, absolutely. Um, let's get into it. One fifteen, Richard. What's your one big thing this week? One big thing. Well, we sort of uh, tease this. Um, we haven't done a segment. We haven't done this one big thing segment because we were focusing on the on you know participants in the uh, Global Health Span Summit for one fourteen which was excellent. Um, ended up being in you know, Riyadh for 10 days or so. You had to do the quick trip over and back because you've been over there so frequently. Um, and you know, coming back from the trip, I was sort of wading through all the things that actually happened. And as you said, it's like a fire hose, just amazing. I mean, Saudi, while, while I was there, Saudi won its bid for the Expo 2030, which we'll talk about in Yellow. COP28 had begun and was ongoing, and there's a lot of news coming out there. Saudi Arabia announced its budget for 2024. Saudi confirmed a 30-year tax incentive for RHQ participants. Kadia was, quote, unquote, relaunched. I mean, just, uh, just you know, a constant flow of big deals. And But the reason I mentioned it was because the, the item I liked best, uh, you know, among all this news flow was a report by Bloomberg and others noting that, that, quote, for the first time, unquote, Saudi Arabia says some Vision 2030 projects will be delayed, which I guess is an interesting choice of what I liked. Um, let me read from that, if I can, that Bloomberg, Bloomberg article, just to give you the, the, the context. So this is all directly from the article here. Um, Saudi Arabia has delayed... Uh, past 2030, some of the projects launched as part of its economic transformation plan. In the first admission that the kingdom is having to shift the timeline for meeting the goals of the multi-trillion dollar program, the government, which is forecasting budget deficits every year out to 2026, has decided on the extension to build capacity and avert huge inflationary pressures and supply bottlenecks. This is according to Finance Minister Mohammed Al-Jadan, who I will say is one of my favorite ministers because he's just relentlessly capable. He didn't specify which projects would be affected. Um, he, he noted a longer period is needed to, quote, build factories, build even uh, sufficient human resources. And he adds the delay, or rather the extension of some projects will serve the economy. Um, after determining how much borrowing was acceptable, the government went back to its review of timeline of projects. This is Al-Jajan speaking. And all plans had been reviewed based on, quote, economic, social employment, economic, social employment and quality of life returns, among other factors, over the last 18 months. Uh, as a result, some are, quote, being accelerated and some largely projects in the pipeline, which have not been announced yet, are being given a longer executional time frame, unquote. There are, quote, there are strategies that have been postponed and there are strategies that will be financed after 2030, unquote. So why, why am I excited about a delay in Vision 2030 projects? Um, as you know, Lucian, we talked about on the 966 that we applaud Saudi Arabia's current deficit spending to, in essence, to keep the momentum going on these large key, large projects and, you know, economic diversification and and, you know, in fact, they can do this. Um, the finance ministry recently projected that public debt will reach about 26% of the economic output by the end of 2024, the end of next year, which is, this is a comparatively low level by global standards. 
Uh, so they can do this for a time, but you know, moving now to adjust investments and make choices regarding major projects is just fundamentally sensible. And um, what what I I think one of the things one of the hallmarks about Vision Twenty Thirty that I have most appreciated. Um, especially in, well, if you consider the fact that what you hear about Vision 2030 is, you know, incredibly ambitious nature of the vision, the, the very hard charging and keep pushing approach of the crown prince. But I think what they've done well is adapt actually and be open to adjustments and alterations. And you saw this early. You, you, you remember the National Transformation Program. There's, there was a one and a two. The first one was just overly ambitious, was out of line. They really couldn't implement it. They went back and redid it. Uh, and a lot of the regulatory reform, you see them two, you know, uh, you know, one two steps up, one step back, sort of trying to figure it out, refine it, remove it. You even see this in RHQ as it's evolved. You're seeing it in uh, Nitakat, which precedes Vision 2030. But a lot of their regular forms, uh, regulatory reforms, have been uh, refined as a result of pushback and feedback. So, in any exercise, stretching or adjusting timelines or investment cycles are required. And so this, to me, does a couple of things. One, it recognizes the obvious. Yes, Saudi Arabia can deficit spend, but it can't do it indefinitely. You have to make choices. Um, yes, Saudi Arabia, as it gets into these projects, understands that some make sense, others make less sense. Some will move at this pace, some will move at a quicker pace. And we see this happening. And it's a comment, it's it's a theme sort of we've had on the show. I really like it when things start moving the target date off of 2030. Because 2030 is not the terminal of this whole project. 2030 is not the final exam. You're gonna have to have a, you know, you're gonna have a checkup at that point. Um, you might call it a midterm, but whatever it is, it's not the, the final grade doesn't happen in 2030. 2030 is the direction you're headed. It's not the grade you're going to get when you get there. And so the, the, actually the, the quote from Minister Aljajan that I love the most was, um, and I think I, I appreciate because it reflects the fact that they're making hard decisions is here's the quote is uh, certain projects can be expanded for three years. So it's 2033. Some will be expanded to 2035. And some will be expanded even beyond that. And some will be rationalized, unquote. I love the term rationalized. I think it's fiscal code word for disappeared. Um, if, you're, if your project is rationalized, I guess you look for another project. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, so I, I, again, out of all the news, I love it. We talk, we always talk about implementation. You know, we, we understand the goals of Vision 2030. We see the announcements, but we always talk about implementation. Implementation requires adjustment and decisions, you know, and they have to, they have to marry the reality on the ground with the, the financing available, the debt that they can sustain. And, and doing it now uh, is, is, is important because it, it lends credibility. It keeps the dialogue open and transparent. And uh, I just think it was an important step and a meaningful, a meaningful moment for Saudi Arabia in this transition. Yeah, this is a good one. And, and we almost basically chose the same subject for 
the one big thing with all the things going on, I mean, mine was going to be a slightly different take. Um, and when we conferred on this before the show, it was just funny because I was like, wait, that's kind of what I was thinking about doing with it as a different tack. But I think this is a really good one and an important one. And just I completely agree with everything you said. I thought you were going to choose as your favorite quote from Al Jadan, the one at the very bottom of this article. Um, and I would have bet money you would have chosen this. Cho- uh, you would have chosen this. But he said, quote, optimizing spending is not only about reducing spending. It's about the best way to use resources in order to achieve optimal returns. And I just think that that is so smart because it's like, hey, look, we had this plan at the beginning, 2016, this thing's been in the work for forever. We have the 2030 date. We just need you to focus less and less on that 2030 date and understand that we're going to make some adjustments along the way. This is smart, like full stop. This is not just, oh, we're sort of, you know, figuring things out on the fly. It's we're seven years into this thing. These are all carefully planned things that are that they are adjusting to be smart. They're not going to make foolish decisions because they said something seven years ago. And, you know, I think it's interesting. Some things are taking longer because of logistical bottlenecks. I think the article points that out. You know, Mm -hmm. some of these projects are so big, they're going to take some more time to build. And then some things just don't make sense anymore. I mean, things have changed. Oil prices go up and down. Regardless of that, it's like, well, maybe we don't need this anymore. I mean, no one really expected the 108th mile of the line to be done on 20, you know, December 2029. But what I think is what I agree with you about, especially here, is 2030 is a date. It's a medical checkup. I think that's a great term. And since then, you know, since since two weeks ago, we learned about the expo. Soon, I think we're going to have official confirmation of the World Cup. Those things weren't in the cards when Vision 2030 was announced. That's going to be some big, both of those are going to be a lot of money. Maybe not Kadia money or the Lion money, but those things will be huge spends. The Saudi government is making adjustments accordingly. So I think this is a really good one. Yeah, they're talking $8 billion for for the World Expo, at least. Um but yeah, 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 I can understand that that quote. I just couldn't get past. I love that. I love the rationalized quote. I just thought that that was so that was so minister of financey, you know, in terms of saying, well, you know, sorry, sir, your project may be rationalized. Yeah, hey, this was funny. I was sending this article around too when it first came out because I was like, you know, this shows a level of maturity and sort of. I mean, it's it's this is like grown up finance minister behavior. He was not, by the way, at the FII in Hong Kong. This These comments were made back in Riyadh, which was interesting. When I first heard this, I was like, oh, he's making these comments at the FII thing in Hong Kong. And indeed, he was actually in, in Riyadh making these comments. So it, it is interesting. Um, we, I was looking at Kadia because I was interested in when the Jack Nicholas golf course is going to be yeah. ready. And I was Googling that. And I was aware that there was a, a story, and you mentioned it earlier, that you know, Kadia is going to be kind of relaunched and there is no end date. It is a massive undertaking and it's far away from Riyadh. It's 40 kilometers from Riyadh city center, but it's also not just like a theme park. It's like a theme park city with golf and F1 and all these other things going on and, you know, residential developments. But I was looking into that and I was saying, you know, Hey, like when is this Jack Nicholas golf course coming to Riyadh? And the only thing that I can find online for it is that it should be ready by the end of 2022, <laughs> which has come and gone and there <laughs> is no golf course. And that's OK. You know, I, I, that was sort of a ridiculous promise anyway from the the uh, developers of that. But 
Look, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not coming. It doesn't mean that they aren't working on it. We know they are. Things are being adjusted accordingly. And like you said, and, and hinted at as well, I mean, they, they were probably pretty surprised that the tourism numbers were as high as they were. Sure. They didn't expect to revise those upwards. And many outsiders said, hey, you're never going to hit 100 million tourists, guys. I don't know why you're putting that out there as 2030's goal. And 2024 is almost here. They're almost there. They're revising those upwards. So you got to adjust the sales. That's what the realist does. So. Yeah, and I would add, I would you know, add that you mentioned we've talked about sensibility, and that's right. I think a lot of this comes with confidence. I think they feel you know they projected out their cost to twenty thirty and probably beyond. Um, they are in a good position in terms of debt. You know, they don't carry a lot of debt as compared to the globe and a lot of other countries. I mean, you don't you you want to you want to keep that limited as as much as possible. But they have room, and and their debt has been attractive. They have no problem placing debt, and. Um, so, you know, their feeling is we can continue to do this. You know, we'll we'll continue to deficit spend, but uh, you know, concurrently we will make rational decisions about projects and and and, and adjust timelines and and tweak uh, you know goals and that sort of thing. So it's great. I love it. It's it's confidence. It's sensible. It's um it's it's good governance. Mm-hmm. My one big thing this week is the new U.S. embassy that has broken ground in Riyadh. And that's the one big thing is that this embassy and uh, Ambassador Michael Ratney today, I guess it was yesterday now that uh, you'll be hearing this. It was, uh, technically, was it was Tuesday afternoon, Richard? So I don't even know mm-hmm. what day it is anymore. <laughs> but um, this week they broke ground on the U- new U.S. embassy in Riyadh and just wanted to kind of talk about that because it will be the largest embassy in Riyadh, when it's completed, it will take several years to complete. It is a massive undertaking. And you can see photos. We're going to have some for those watching this on YouTube. I never remember where it is. I think it's on that side. But right here, you're going to see photos of the new embassy, um, some of the renderings, and you'll see the groundbreaking ceremony. But uh, U.S. and Saudi officials participated in a ceremony this week. They did the groundbreaking ceremony. It is a pretty significant milestone in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I mean, the U.S. is Riyadh's, you know, one of their best friends, uh, certainly their most powerful friend. This relationship has been going on for 76 years now. So this is kind of nice to see that there will be a brand new 27.5 acre embassy in Riyadh. Uh, there was a ceremony and it was at the ceremony, De- Deputy Assistant Secretary for Arabian Peninsula Affairs, Daniel Benaim. And Saudi Deputy Foreign Minister, His Excellency Mr. Walid bin Abdul Karim Al Kareji, joined U.S. Ambassador Mike Ratney for the event. Uh, Mike Ratney was confirmed on March 15th, and he addressed the uh, attendees of the ceremony. And Richard, you included this this week for the today, sorry, for the news reviews quoted, which is a section at the top of every newsletter that has a, a meaningful quote from somebody. Uh, that kind of drives the day. We always think it's a nice soft entrance into the newsletter. But Mike Ratney said, quote, the new embassy set to be the largest embassy compound in Saudi Arabia is emblematic of the expanding U.S.-Saudi relationship. Today, that relationship encompasses not only energy and security, but also business, tech, education, innovation, and increasingly areas like art and culture, which I'm going to come back to in a second. Ratney underscored that the scale and ambition of this project reflect the strong and growing U.S.-Saudi strategic partnership. This is all released in a press release. The new building blends Saudi Arabia's traditional architecture, Salmani architecture, we may 
go on a limb to guess. <laughs> um, and modern design emphasize the latest security and sustainability features. The state-of-the-art facility will provide, quote, a modern, secure, and efficient workplace for embassy staff and serve as a powerful symbol for the United States' enduring partnership with Saudi Arabia. So on the design, and, and I actually, I do want to mention, so they, they mentioned twice security, and that is sort of important to note. The embassy is going to be in the diplomatic quarter. That is its own sort of secure area in Riyadh. And we talked about this when we were in Riyadh last week, Richard, that when you end up going to the diplomatic quarter, you know, increasingly it's easier to get in and out of, but it used to be not that long ago that you would have to go through some heavy security just to get into this district in Riyadh because that's where all the embassies were. And it was always intimidating to kind of come and go. Now it's a little bit less so, but there still is a security situation there that you have to go in and out of to get, I think you stayed in a hotel there, Richard. I did, I stayed at the Marriott Courtyard DQ. Nice, okay. So, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure, I'm sorry to say this on on your behalf, but I think we talked about this where we talked about how it used to be like, hey, when you're in a cab going to the TQ, they would really look in the car and make sure everything was safe. And they they still do that, but it's not as heavy of security. Anyway, back to the embassy. So the reason why they mentioned security, I think at least twice in this release, is that there have been some security incidents, not at the embassy in Riyadh, but at the consulate in Jeddah over the years, a handful of different you know, shootings and, and attempted breaches of security at the embassy in Jeddah. So security will be an important part of this embassy. Um, but on the design, Morphosis, Morphosis of Los Angeles is the design architect and Cadell Construction Company of Montgomery, Alabama, is the lead design build contractor and uh, Integris Architecture of Seattle is the architect of record. So all U.S. firms building it, of course. The Bureau of Overseas Buildings Operation the OBO, I've never heard of that government organization, <laughs> provides the most effective facilities for U.S. diplomacy abroad, uh, yada, yada, yada. They're, they're the ones that are that are building this. So I tried to figure out what this was going to cost, and it's kind of hard to get an exact figure. Had to go back in time to when John Abizade was ambassador, and he sort of signed the deal for this when they bought the land from the Saudi government. The whole thing, including a new consulate in Dahran, and a new consulate in Jeddah, which recently opened, is just over a billion dollars. So that is not the most expensive embassy abroad, your tax dollars at work. The most expensive is actually in London right now, which is a huge glass cube. And I, this was its own rabbit hole on Reddit that I went down. A really, really <laughs> cool billion dollar glass cube that is U.S. soil in London. Um, and that looks really neat. This, you'll see photos of this. This is kind of like, you know, I mean, it does have solar. It looks more sustainable. This just looks like an embassy to me. Uh, the one being built in Vietnam is projected to cost $1.2 billion. And that looks pretty amazing. That kind of indicates a shift in U.S. focus away from China a little bit, but into the region still nonetheless. And then earlier this year, Richard, I think we had this as a yellow but a new U.S. embassy complex in London caused, uh, excuse me, in Lebanon caused a few heads to turn on the internet. Um, That is going to be about a billion dollar new embassy in Lebanon. Looks like a city of its own. Um, And that sort of caused some interest on the internet because, you know, Lebanon is having a really tough financial situation right now and the economy is not in a good spot, but still this U.S., this new U.S. billion dollar embassy is being built and is uh, seeing some traction. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the interest, the, the, this all, as soon as you unpackage this box, you get into sort of the history of, you know, the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I mean, the first mission for the U.S. Uh, in Saudi Arabia was in Jeddah in 1943. Uh, full diplomatic relations with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia commenced in 1948, and the U.S. mission located in a traditional house in the old city center of Jeddah was upgraded to the status of an embassy. The embassy moved in 1952 to the current consulate general location, which at the time was an isolated beachfront property to the north of the city limits. It's probably not that anymore, the way Jeddah is building. Along with other foreign missions, the embassy was transferred to Riyadh in 1984. So what, a 30-year run here, a 40-year run here, that's pretty good. Um, the former embassy compound in Jeddah is now America's consulate general for the dynamic western region of Saudi Arabia. This is, of course, according to the website. Um, so yeah, so that's three full presences the U.S. has and representing about a billion dollars of, of recent investment into Saudi Arabia. So should be cool to see this thing uh, get launched um, in, I don't know, five to 10 years, whenever, however long this is going to take. 52 months. Is that what they're saying? So at some point, I have to, I have to tell you about my uh, experience getting around uh, Beirut in the early aughts and going to the embassy there. It's oh, quite the, it's quite the uh, semi-automatic experience. Um, so as it happens, we need to make sure we remember to do that because yeah. that that's gold right there. <laughs> about a week ago, um, I I met with Ambassador Ratting when I was in Riyadh, and it was a really good visit. Oh, nice! Um, and but it was an education for me because because I had become accustomed to the ambassador's residence. Residence in the DQ used to be a Quincy House, which is a lovely building. And in fact, Quincy House is the site of where this em embassy is going in. So they, they had bought this, this parcel, that 27-acre parcel, 27-and-a-half-acre parcel, was the last big piece of land in the DQ. And it's a pretty piece because it overlooks the wadi. And so when, when I was arranging to meet with the ambassador, I was thinking we're going to go to the Quincy House. No, you go, you know, he's staying because they're, they're raising all, everything in the Quincy House and putting in this new uh, embassy. The ambassador now stays at the Shenandoah House, which is where the DCM, Deputy Chief of Mission, used to stay. Um, so that's where we met. Um, but he was very excited about this. And the 52 months is what he said it would take to, you know, how long it would take to, to complete the, the thing. So what is that? That's four plus years, which is not bad. Um, but it's also interesting too in the design because the current embassy, U.S. embassy in the, in the DQ is of the post 9-11 vintage. And you remember almost all of those um embassies were big ugly blocks you know they were just an assault on the senses because they were just simply defense you know they were like uh you know they were like arsenals you know you, you, you know they were designed to you know be impervious to everything and as a result they're inaccessible largely inaccessible and they, they upset a lot of people in Riyadh because you have long lines you know security checks are so great understandable um, but I'm glad we're moving past that kind of building. Morphosis, Morphosis, I guess, is one of the designers on the line too, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's um, some nice synergy there. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, but anyway, they're very excited about this, and I think it's great they're doing it. I think it speaks to the. It is important to have a a, a 
you know, a full and complete footprint with this relationship and key relationships, just like we do elsewhere with key relationships. So it's nice. And um, I actually had a very nice conversation with ambassador and I'm, and, and we were discussing and I was sharing with him how exciting it must be for a professional diplomat. Curiously enough, he's the first professional diplomat to be ambassador in Saudi Arabia since my good friend, Chaz Freeman. Um, and Chaz Freeman was uh, ambassador during the, the, the first Gulf war. And what was funny about that was, uh, Chaz Freeman, extraordinarily brilliant guy, you know, was Nixon's interpreter in China. He was had really had a lot of experience in Africa. They said, Hey, you know, go, go be the ambassador in Saudi Arabia. Nothing ever happens there. So he goes there, Gulf war happens. He ends up being, he ends up having the largest embassy ever because every, you know, the 450,000 U.S. soldiers that went into Saudi Arabia came in under the auspices of the embassy. So that embassy was like, you know, 450,000, you know, strong. Um, but then you have other folks like Ambassador Robert Jordan, who arrived, I think, just a couple of weeks before 9-11. So their, their experiences were really demanding and challenging and uh, exciting in their own way. But they were all done uh, in terms of the existing U.S.-Saudi uh, engagement, the framework. Ambassador Ratney's opportunity here is really neat because they're redefining the relationship. And I think for the first time in a long time, you know, just, you know, setting out a whole new set of parameters and guidelines and how we're going to engage and what we're going to engage on. And I think he's very excited to be there. And, and I would be excited to be if I were a professional diplomat. Um, he won't be there, you don't think, when this new embassy shows up, but it hardly matters. But uh, very exciting times with the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Mm -hmm. When you say that they have not been professional diplomats, they've been mostly generals, right, or politicians. Well, political appointees, yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they all are political appointees, right? Well, they, well, yes and no. I mean, you can have a, you know, there's a, there's, you know, there's, you know, foreign service officers, um, right. you know, they're already in the government. They already work for the government. Whereas someone like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Robert Jordan or, uh, Abizade or, or White yeah. Fowler, who was mm -hmm. a Senator, you know, they, they weren't government employees in essence, you know, mm -hmm. ambassador Ratney is a government employee. Yeah. Who's just, this is part of his task you know, he's tasked to do this job as opposed to a friend of the president. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. The, the security thing, it makes, reminds me of, um, when I got back from Saudi, I guess it was about two days, two days after I got back from Riyadh, my whole family was going to the white house for the white house Christmas party. Getting into the white house is like, you know, it actually is pretty streamlined. It's not like, it doesn't take a long time but it's three separate security entrances and it's like you're it's like groundhog day you're going through the same airport security line over and over and over which with extremely young children is super fun and interesting um and, but you got to do that and that's just how it is so um yeah totally. really cool glad you met with the ambassador hope that he joins us on the 966 in due course um like you said he's probably really busy but uh that would be well, awesome and he's probably got a lot to share yeah, absolutely. Invites out there. And he seems, he seems, well, I won't prejudice it anyways, but certainly the invites out there, he'd be, he'd be excellent. Um, and there's lots of good things to talk about in terms of what, what's going on, but 
yeah, that was a good one. I like that. And I think it was, it's an interesting human interest story, but also it's a, it's a meaningful um, story in terms of the relationship. Yeah. I mean, well, there, there's nothing like putting the invite out there directly to him like you did, but then also imploring all of our <laughs> listeners and viewers to nudge him from many different directions. And eventually he may just have to join us on the 966 so that he shuts them all up, which would be a good result for us as well. Um, it is too bad that this uh, embassy, Richard, is not just a super tall skyscraper and he just went with the, <laughs> the tallest embassy it would actually be a, a pretty good flex. But anyway, um, <laughs> Good one uh, from you as well, Richard. Thank you for that. And uh, let's get to our conversation with Dr. Basma Al-Buhairan, Managing Director of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, C4IR, Saudi Arabia. We are speaking now with Dr. Basma Al-Buhairan, Managing Director of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution of Saudi Arabia, part of the World Economic Forum's Global Network of 4IR Center. The center supports Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 by being a platform for public-private, multi-stakeholder collaboration to maximize technological benefits to society and minimize the risks associated with 4IR tech in the kingdom. Prior to this role, Dr. Basma was a key advisor and part of the founding team of the Research Development Innovation Authority of Saudi Arabia. She served as Chief Business Development and Events Management Officer at the National Events Center of Saudi Arabia. She also served in various high-level roles at Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Investment and has deep experience setting up greenfield healthcare facilities and operations in Saudi Arabia. And there are several impressive examples of this on her resume. She also has expertise in healthcare transformation, education, and investment development. Dr. Basma, welcome on to the 966. Thanks for joining us. So thank you, uh, Lucian and Richard. Um, it's an honor and pleasure to be with you um, both here this, this evening, I guess, where I am, and probably afternoon where you are. Mm -hmm. um, just a point of correction, um, I am still um, an advisor and part of the founding team at the Research Development Innovation Authority. So I'm doing two roles at the same uh, same time. Well, uh, that was a tremendous introduction and, and we can actually stop right now. That's an episode. Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> that's it. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> no, 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 because it was so impressive, not because it was so long, but so Basma, you know, I, I, you know, I always avoid saying old friend, but I always consider, a, you know, an old friend, someone we've known a long time, really enjoyed and been impressed by and, and has been enjoyed to work with whenever possible. We got to visit in Riyadh recently when Lucian and I were there. It was tremendous. Thank you. Um, and there's so many places to begin, but let's talk, let's start with the, let's, let's, let's move, let's, let's talk with a current because we want to get to your personal story because it's an interesting one. Um, but let's start with the broad, let's start with your RDIA, um, uh, research and develop research development innovation authority. I think that's properly. And then we'll move into your, uh, for CIR responsibility. Uh, a C4IR Center for Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, and so, if we can, let's, that's the opening framework, and we'll take it from there because I think it'll go many places. Wonderful. So, thank you, Richard. You are an old friend. We've known each other for you know several years, and I think we first met when I was at Sagia, yeah. and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. You know, later in the show. So the Research Development and Innovation Authority is a new entity that was set up or announced, let's say, um, in 2021, specifically June 2021. Um, and by its acronym, it's, 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 it is Research Development and uh, Innovation. It's an authority that, you know, focuses, you know, on that specifically. Um, so the authority is equivalent to the NSF of what you have in the United States. 
Um, and so mm. the Research Development Innovation Authority was established to act as an enabler, a, a legislator, a regulator to develop missions, um, flagship projects, to provide funding, you know, for research, for basic research, applied research, et cetera, to also oversee the research development innovation ecosystem, to monitor, you know, its performance, keep track of what's going on in the innovation ecosystem, and very importantly, to, you know, empower, facilitate, enhance, you know, and uplift the entire innovation ecosystem in, in the kingdom. So research development and innovation, as I'm sure you, you're aware, is an imperative for any nation, right? It drives economic growth. And so what the kingdom has done as part of, you know, Vision 2030, and in making sure that we move towards a knowledge-based and innovation-based economy, we've restructured our, our RDI uh, governance. And with the restructuring, um, a Supreme Committee, an RDI Supreme Committee was established, and this is spearheaded, chaired, by uh, the Crown Prince and the Prime Minister, His Royal Highness Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and the Research Development Innovation Authority was established or you know, was born. Um, and we all know that RDI um, is an economic uh, driver to drive the economic growth of any nation. Um, it creates resilience and it also solves challenges, you know, existential challenges, you know, as, as just one you know, e example. And it will also enable us to distinguish those who are leaders from laggers. And so it is an imperative for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to also proactively address societal, economic, and national security risks. Um, and sectors are being disrupted, you know, every day by, by innovation. Um, and, and we have a lot of, you know, mega and giga projects that are, that, that are ongoing and they require uh, innovation and innovation um, engine. Um, back in 2022, I think it was in July 2022, if I'm not mistaken, um, our crime, uh, our Crown Prince and Prime Minister, um, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, announced the four national priorities that the kingdom is going to focus on when it comes to research development and innovation. And these four areas essentially include um, health and wellness, sustainability and essential needs, energy um, and industry, um, and economies of the future. Now, it was also announced um, that uh, by the Crown Prince, the Prime Minister, that research development and innovation, um, that, that the kingdom you know, is very ambitious when it comes to research development and um, innovation, um, and that we are going to become a global leader in RDI uh, with an annual investment that's equivalent to 2.5% of GDP um, in 2040. We will also create very high value uh, uh, jobs in, in the area of science and um, technology. Um, so I think, you know, I just wanted to sort of set the context at a high level and just to kind of explain, you know, to you and to our listeners, you know, why, you know, why is RDI important um, to the kingdom? And, and, you know, and how does that really link to Vision 2030? And you're an advisor at RDIA. Correct. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's uh, sort of one one aspect of your, you know, how you manage your day, which I imagine is very difficult. Uh, you are managing director of C4IR, Center for Industrial, Fourth, Re Fourth Industrial Revolution. I'm going to struggle with that all day. <laughs> and... Um, and so can you tell us about this? Because this is a fascinating tie up with the World Economic Forum. 
Sure, absolutely. So maybe let's go back in time a bit, you know, just a brief bit of history, you know, to also put things into perspective. So we had the first industrial revolution back in the 1700s, and that was when we had, you know, machineries and steam engines. Okay. The second industrial revolution came about in the 1800s, and that was when we had mass production, assembly lines, electrical energy. The third industrial revolution came about in the 1960s, and that was when we had automation, um, computers, and electronics. And now we're at the fourth industrial revolution, and the fourth industrial revolution focuses on emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, blockchain, quantum, robotics, autonomous mobility, and so on. So the center for the fourth industrial revolution in Saudi Arabia, and we um, call it C4IRKSA, you know, uh, an abbreviated name because when I, I just kind of feel like when I say the entire name, it's just a, it's a mouthful to actually say. <laughs> um, so C4IRKSA is part of the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution Network that actually connects more than 15 centers around the globe. Um, and the number keeps, you know, increasing um, uh, very quickly, actually. Um, and why is this important? This is important because it actually helps stakeholders to harness the potential of emerging technologies, such as the ones that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, um, and by ensuring that they that there that there there is equity in their utilization, and that there is also a human-centered transformation of industries, economies, and societies globally. So our center, C4IRKSA, was actually launched in 2020 as a strategic and a very future-oriented do tank to enhance the applications of 4IR technologies and to shape their responsible adoption and economic diversification and sustainable development in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in alignment with the goals of Vision 2030. And so the alignment with Vision 2030 is actually evidenced in the various activities that we undertake um, uh, at the center, and they're guided by four basic principles. The first principle is promoting innovation by generating actionable knowledge on new and developing uh, technologies, including the value they create and the potential risks that they may actually pose. The second principle is catalyzing industry transformation. And how do we do this? We do this by connecting industries and sectors to drive the responsible uptake of, of disruptive technologies and business models. And the third um, is improving governance by driving responsible governance to ensure that technologies are safe, ethical, reliable, and scalable um, to solve not only local challenges, but also global challenges. So any project we undertake has to be sort of scalable or implementable globally across the world. And the fourth objective is in relation to capacity building or talent development. And this is by support by preparing our future forward national talent with hands-on international experience to develop the key for IR governance skills through the center's fellowship opportunities that we that we offer. So I guess in a nutshell or in summary, the center is playing a pivotal role in shaping and advancing the implementation. In, in, in advancing the implementation uh, of Vision 2030 programs by fostering solutions based on collaborations and partnerships that we create amongst the various um, stakeholders within the ecosystem. And these stakeholders include government, private sector, academic and research institutions, as well as civil society, um, to implement progressive policies that would allow the harnessing of 4IR technologies. Um, fascinating. And, and what was the first one, Basma? Was it the, the first one of the, the four group? Was it was it risks? It was promoting uh, innovation. All right. Promoting innovation. 
Um, so it, it, it just just so our listeners know, um, this World Economic Forum network of which Riyadh is part of is is vast. I mean, you had you said sixteen centers, um, and you know, but and they that's from Malaysia to San Francisco, from you know Norway to uh, South Africa, and then you've got offices, um, and Saudi Arabia is you know is you know in the region with I guess there's one in the UAE and Israel as well, but. Uh, it's really an interesting network, and this was sort of all started in 2016 or thereabouts. I guess just again as background, the the the, the fourth industrial revolution concept, you know, was sort of popularized by Klaus Schwab with World Economic Forum with his book Fourth Industrial Revolution in 2016. So, so has all this come about, sort of almost in in lockstep with Vision 2030? I mean, Vision 2030 was, you know, announced in 2016. Yeah, so um, let me just maybe, just a point to clarify this, um, our engagement um, in relation to the World Economic Forum is, although we're based in Riyadh, but it's for KSA as a whole. So the Center right. for Fourth Industrial Revolution, KSA, um, you know, works with the entire nation. We're here, you know, at, we're here to help or to support KSA, let's say our center's role is to help uh, KSA in harnessing the the, uh, the the adoption of emerging technologies uh, right. by also ensuring that they're ethical and safe to use, and you know there's responsible adoption and that nobody is left behind, and there's inclusivity, right? So everything that the World Economic Forum, you know, speaks to and and, and talks about. Um, so I think that's that's important to note. Um, but we are based in Riyadh. Now, you're absolutely right. The term or the phrasing was coined by Klaus Schwab back in 20, uh, 2016. Um, you know, Vision 2030 was announced in 2016. I can't really speak to the history of, you know, maybe it was just coincidence. I don't know. It was. <laughs> you know, it, it, I, it was probably coincidence. You know, it's like you've got all your ducks in a row, right? And it just, you know, things just sort of maybe worked out very well. I've only been leading the center uh, since uh, June or July of 2022. Um, so I've only been with the center uh, for over a year, I guess, 17, 18 months um, or so, although it seems right. a bit longer, uh, a bit longer than that. Um, so I, I, you know, I can't really speak to what happened, you know, prior to that. Um, I, you know, I can talk to what's been happening since I've been, you know, in this role and, you know, and, and my engagement with the World, you know, Economic Forum. No, no, I, I, I'm sure it was just completely coincidental, but I, I am fascinated. And I, this is one of the reasons I was so, we were so excited to talk with you is because, um, you know, uh, developing countries like Saudi Arabia, or Saudi Arabia is coming along and is growing, is now becoming middle, middle power. I and mean, we saw it last year it had a trillion dollar economy. So it's moving along. It's like, you know, uh, what is it? 17th largest GDP in, in, the, in the world. So it's a significant economy. But it also has an opportunity here uh, with maybe fewer legacy systems to leapfrog. And when you when you run down the list or the standard list of four IR technologies, you know, quantum computing, 5G, blockchain, you know, cloud computing, Internet of Things, biotechnology, you know, robotics, uh, computer technology. I mean, on and on, AI in particular, AI runs through it. These are things that Saudi Arabia in this moment are trying to leverage 
to move to a new economy, diversify, and you know give new opportunities to their population. And it it's just it is really fortunate timing in many ways that one these technologies are out there. Two, Saudi Arabia uh, as leadership has decided we're going to move very aggressively and you know and and responsibly forward in this path. Uh, and let's three, let's 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 find a way to move it all together. And some of that all comes together in your office. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Saudi Arabia is is using these technologies to further Vision Twenty Thirty? Yeah, sure. So they're they're using them in different ways, and maybe I can put some color to this through you know the different projects that we have. Now we are the only center amongst the more than 15 centers that the forum has, and they are around the world, um, that has uh, signed up to or is working on six projects, okay? So we're a very, very active center. So the projects that we have um, include the following. One is IIoT for SMEs, and that is the industrial internet of things for SMEs. And in that project, we're focusing on or working on how do we enable SMEs to digitally transform, right? To get them to adopt um, industrial internet of things because it'll make them more competitive, it'll make them more productive and it'll be more efficient. So I'm gonna interrupt real quickly because you're, 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 you're clearly very conversant with the Washington scene because the acronyms, uh, IIoT, I know internet of things, but for our listeners, IIoT for SMEs, go ahead and, go ahead and work to break that down for us. <laughs> so industrial internet for small and medium enterprises. Beautiful. Sorry about that. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> because I only knew it because we talked about it when we were in Riyadh, but uh, you know, if, if it weren't for that, I'd be wondering, you know, what I, what did she just say? <laughs> okay. So apologies for that. So, no. so, in that, so that project we're working with, so for every project, we have a project community and every project community is comprised of government, private sector, and with private sector in particular, small and medium enterprises, um, academic research organizations, and um, civil society. Okay, so for this particular project, our main stakeholder uh, is the Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources, right? So they're really in the driving seat. We 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 do everything to to facilitate, to support. You know, we do some of the heavy lifting. We we scope out the project, um, but all in alignment, all in collaboration with them, right? Because you can't do it alone. And 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 you know, there are already efforts that are underway across the different entities, the different ministries that involve emerging technologies. So we're here to sort of to 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 support them because we have the ability to also um, uh, try things out, right? Where you can, uh, where we can also um, uh, suggest things like having like a regulatory sandbox, so to speak, right? Things where you can try things out. In. So with the uh, with the industrial Internet of Things for small and medium enterprises, um, that project uh, again, as I mentioned, is focused on on how do we get the SMEs to digitally transform? How do we do this? You know, the government has already um, uh, uh, developed um, different sort of uh, programs for small and medium enterprises to help them move towards this digital transformation. Um, we, we, you know, we've, we've developed a publication, a community paper uh, many months ago that, um, that talks about these case studies, 
right? And and we've presented that, that's been presented to the global audience um, as well for others to know what we're doing in KSA. Um, and, you know, how, what, what is it that we're doing to help SMEs digitally transform? Um, we just recently published a 4IR use case guide that has 26 use cases that focus, focus on the industrial internet of things for SMEs. And that the purpose of that guide, again, is to create awareness to raise um, the, 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 the knowledge and, and the awareness that these SMEs have to also to enable them to digitally transform. And these use cases were, you know, we, uh, they were put together in this guidebook from the different stakeholders and partners that we're working with that are part of, of, uh, of, of this project. What is the end result of this project going to be? The end result of this project is going to be to suggest a regulatory framework or a framework that encompasses uh, several parameters or elements that uh, ought to be considered or, you know, for government um, as they move forward in developing policies to enable the digital transformation of small and medium enterprises. So we don't develop policies per se, but we co-create and we co-design with our stakeholders what would this regulatory framework look like? What are the different elements that it should encompass um, for, for when a policy will be developed or a legislation would be developed, that it would take those sort of, that framework into consideration. And then that framework could be scalable, could be looked at by other nations. So in our project for, for the Industrial Internet of Things for SMEs, we are anchored with C4IR Brazil. So what does that mean? This means that this project was already started by Brazil, by that C4IR center. They have learnings that we've learned from. They've developed a framework. They've done it in, um, I think it was one or two sectors. We're looking at IIoT across many sectors, not just one sector. So obviously the, you know, the context is different, but there are learnings that we've learned from. And so we're building on that. Um, so I hope that just sort of makes sense that gives you know more color. In another project that we have, um, and this is still under scope, uh, uh, this, this is a, it's an early stage project. We're looking at the adoption of heavy lifting drones. And a heavy lifting drone is anything that can carry, that is over 25 kgs. It carries anything over 25 kgs. So what are, you know, what regulations do we need um, to enable the adoption of heavy lifting drones, you know, in, um, in KSA? Um, and so this project aims to actually propose a regulatory framework for the adoption and utilization of heavy lifting um, uh, drone delivery um, and to have that be integrated into you know, the national airspace. And we've seen that there is a lot of interest from different companies um, uh, that are in Saudi Arabia. You know, a couple are you know, working um, in Neom um, and that's public knowledge. Um, that uh, you know want to to be engaged um, in, in this area, but we need to enable them, and that's where you know the role of C4IR comes in is to work with our stakeholders in co-creating, co-designing these regulatory frameworks. And because we're part of the World Economic Forum um, a broader network and the Center of Industrial Revolution Network, we're able to also gather best practices and global learnings um, from from the rest of the network. And that was two, you said there were- There's six, I just gave you two. So we have All another right. one. Uh, oh, 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can actually you yeah, you, you can the remaining four you can run through because it's fascinating because uh, I, I think Lucia and I probably both had the so th same thought. We had um, I was thinking of our friend uh, uh, Abdul Azuz who uh Muhammad Ghazi we did an episode these guys do drones and they had he, he has a he has a, a beast of a drone he clearly is heavy lifting but he probably knows the stuff inside out anyway that's an aside so the other one is called AI for AI which is artificial intelligence for agricultural innovation now it's not just looking at or using artificial intelligence for agricultural innovation it's also using other technologies such as the industrial internet of things and drones. And this project is anchored with C4IR India. So they've done something in the agricultural sector, looking at the small farmers. Um, they've developed a framework. Um, so we're taking those learnings. So what are we doing in our project? We are specifically focusing on the, um, the palm subsector within the agricultural um, domain. Uh, we're looking at um, uh, sense. So our palm trees, uh, which are very important to KSA, they're part of um, you know, our uh, heritage, um, uh, get infected with something called weevil disease. So they get infected with um, some sort of um, a pest. Um, and so in this project, we're looking at how do we prevent weevil disease from occurring or predict it, pr predicting it early on and using um, heavy lifting drones to carry pesticides to, to spray right, the palm trees. Um, the IIoT sensor it would be used for the detection part. Um, and we're also uh, using satellite imagery um, uh, as well. The other project is in smart cities and there, um, there are different um, things going on in the area of smart cities um, in the kingdom. And there, what we're trying to do is we're looking at establishing a community to collaborate around sustainable urban transformation, right? And looking at developing a framework for a digital twins. Mm -hmm. um, the other project is on um, autonomous mobility. And with autonomous mobility, because it is a nascent, um, a nascent uh, area for, you know, for the kingdom. And there are um, very strong um, targets within the transportation sector because the transportation sector in the kingdom actually aims to become a global leader in autonomous um, and electric and electric vehicle adoption. And so it's important for us to understand whether the current mobility regulations framework actually would allow or enable, uh, you know, would create that enabling environment uh, for that uh, to happen and to also create lasting um, impact at scale. And the transport uh, general authority sector uh, uh, authority has actually a specific sector uh, a target um, uh, for land transport, and it's quite um, ambitious. Where they aim to transition twenty five percent of goods um, of goods on transport vehicles into AV by twenty thirty. Um, so that's another project that we have. And the last one, which is a new one, and we're scoping that project out right now, that is going to be focused on quantum. Um, so it's still under scoping. I'm not sure what exactly we're going to be um, uh, focusing on there. Um, I, you know, uh, it'll be more clear, um, I think, for us in the next uh, several weeks. So those are the six projects that we have, um, and they're all 
you know, very much aligned to everything that we're doing within KSA and obviously with uh, Vision 2030. And again, everything that we do, we co-create, we co-design with our stakeholders. We don't do it alone. You know, we collaborate, we partner and we share. Um, and, and, and we make sure that, you know, there's buy-in and there's consensus from, from, from uh, you know, everyone who we're working with. So it sort of seems like if that's the sort of uh, the MO for you guys is bringing together these innovators, experts, leaders, then events for you are specific, especially, I should say, impactful. You just concluded about two months ago, I believe, the second Saudi forum for the Industrial Revolution. And I saw we neither of us were there, but we saw some photos online with you and His Excellency Vander Akrayev, and you mentioned the Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources earlier. What's how do you build on those events year to year? And um, tell us a little bit about that event specifically. So that was my, um, so that was the second event for the center. Uh, the first event I believe was a hybrid, uh, uh, physical and virtual. Um, this was completely a physical event, uh, but we had actually, believe it or not, more, I think, attendees online um, than we did in person. Um, and the theme of that was fostering innovation through collective impact for sustainable um, development. And that event was in collaboration with the World um, Economic Forum. So it was co-branded with them. Um, and it was a successful event. Uh, we, we, so the way we designed that event was we looked at, we had sessions that focused on the different sort of projects that we're working on, you know, the, the different themes that we have. Um, and then we had um, two, I think it was functional sessions. Um, uh, and what we've done is we've developed, we developed a, a report, a summary report from that forum. Um, and those learnings that have come from that report, we will use those learnings to help us in the projects that we have as applicable, right? Um, and, and, and if they apply to the projects that we have. Um, and because it's important for us to share our knowledge with everyone, we've actually put our report online. It's on our website. Um, so anybody, you know, can have access to it. Um, we will have another forum. I'm not, we haven't decided when we're going to have the next forum, but the next forum will be a level, you know, um, uh, it will uh, it will be a level higher than than what we had now. Um, and obviously there were, you know, learnings from that, from the, from the forum that, that we had in terms of, you know, what should the next sort of uh, forum look like? What should we bring in to the forum? Should we have, um, you know, innovators, for instance, or an exhibit, or, you know, should we bring in, you know, different sort of sessions? All, we haven't discussed any of these things yet. Um, that is, is, is yet to come. Um, but I think very importantly, what helped us, I think what um, was fruitful about this forum is that it brought together, um, different stakeholders um, uh, to uh, together. It also created more awareness about the center because not many people really knew about the center. Um, so visibility is important for, for the center, um, but it's also important for the center to have a, a value proposition, right? For, 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 uh, for people to also understand, you know, what value would, would, would we have in working or engaging uh, with the center. So I think the forum also helped, you know, in that. Um, 
But are we there yet? Are we there yet? Obviously not. We still, you know, have a lot, uh, a lot more to do. Uh, but I think the conversations that were had on the panels in the fireside chats, um, just with individuals networking, were were very uh, were very interesting, um, and 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 we received positive comments. Um, and we also from that forum, we uh, we had people reach out to us um, wanting to engage with us, um, uh, which you know is was was very complimentary. Um, obviously, and um, and we've started, um, on, you know, these engagements. And some of those partners, we and you discussed the ministry earlier, but you're working with CAST and KAUST, um, among others, right? We work with many. Um, so I have, the center has a board. The board is chaired by His Excellency, um, the president of CAST, uh, Dr. Munir Jusuki. Um, and membership on the board is comprised of government and uh, private sector academic research institutes. So, for example, Sadaya, Neom, Aramco, STC, um, KFU, King Fahad University for Petroleum and Minerals, um, King Saud University, King Abdulaziz University for Science and Technology. Um, who else? Uh, Sadaya, which is the Saudi Data Artificial Intelligence Authority. Um, I'm not sure if I've left anybody. Oh, Ministry of Economy and Planning, Ministry of Communications, Information and Technology. These are our board members. I hope I haven't left any entity out. <laughs> but but besides those entities, and I, I apologize if I've left anybody out. That's but quite a lineup, though. <laughs> but that is that, that was yeah. like that was like that was That's like a who's who. an, an yeah. Oscar, you know, accepting an Oscar. You know, you, you, you have to. <laughs> You have to make sure you don't leave anybody out. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So, um, but in addition to those entities, we work with many people. I mean, you know, I, the private sector is important to us, you know, like small and medium enterprises. You know, we're working with a company called Eotic, a uh, French company. Uh, we're working with others who are much larger. Um, we're working with um, uh, the royal commissions, different royal commissions. Um so I, again, the list is really long. I you know don't have them. I don't know them all top of mind. <laughs> so we work and, no and within government, we work with the regulators as well. The regulators are very important. So uh, it's got to be exciting for you, Basma. I mean, uh, you know, when you just in that short discussion, you're, you're dealing with centers in in Brazil and in India. You know, the number of topics that you just you know, discuss IOT, heavy lifting drones, AI for agricultural innovation, smart cities, um, autonomous um, transportation, and you know, a quantum, extraordinary stuff. And here you are with a degree in public health. <laughs> so you need to tell us how this happened. You know, we met you later when you were with the Ministry of Investment in Sagia. So so, but you know, the, the distance between is pretty huge, but I think, and if you can share with us how that happened, it probably will make sense. Um, so I wish I knew the answer, the answer to that, Richard, you know, uh, maybe we can figure out this answer now in the next few minutes <laughs> during this conversation. So, you know, when His Excellency, Dr. Munir asked me to take on this role, I was already at the Research Development Innovation Authority. Um, he asked to see me, asked me, you know, was telling me about the center and asked me to take on this role. And honestly, you know, I was thinking, you know, I'm not not really sure what his excellency is thinking. I know nothing about emerging technologies. 
<laughs> right. I'm a very candid person. I say what I know and I say what I don't know. Okay. I don't know if that's good or bad, but anyways, that's, <laughs> that's the sort of person I am. And so I was, you know, struggling with it for a while thinking about it. And I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure, but then I'm one that does not say no to a challenge. That has always been, I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness, you know, it could be either or. Um, but I do not say no to a challenge. Um, and I accepted and I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Right. Although, you know, I've had, when I took on this role back in 2022, June or July, 2022, you know, I have, you know, I've got more than 27 years of experience. And so, but still, I think, I don't know if it's me being, you know, being a woman or it's just me the way I am. I was, you know, asking myself and questioning myself, you know, um, did I make the right decision and what in the world am I going to be doing, right? These were thoughts that were going through my mind and, and you know, I'm probably maybe exposing my vulnerability, you know, in saying this, but I'm being quite candid. Sure. Um, and I've actually enjoyed it. Right. Um, I don't need to have the sectoral deep expertise knowledge in, in emerging technologies, but I have other skills that I bring to the table and I'm quite versatile, quite agile, quite adaptable. And I've acquired all these skills over the years. But, you know, what brought me from public health to to where I am? I really don't know. I've never planned out my career. I'm, I, you know, although I'm, you know, I'm a person who, you know, um, is structured, focused, you know, doing a PhD, you, you have to have a plan. I had a plan, but I've never planned out my career. Um, it sort of happened, I guess, by, I don't know, by maybe by chance, by near luck, or I happened to be at the right place at the right time. I don't really know. Um, and, you know, I was a medical technologist many, many years ago, that was what I did my undergrad degree in. And then um, I moved into leadership and management. Um, I was operations administrator for the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. Um, and I did that for several years. And then I commissioned laboratories um, for National Guard Hospital many years ago. But I continued in the sort of path of, of healthcare delivery, right, moving up the ladder and and I moved up the ladder quite quickly um, because my first leadership role um, when I led the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine that was in 2000 um, at the National Guard Hospital um, and I continued and then I moved into more of healthcare and life sciences investment that was when I went to Sagia and I was leading healthcare and life sciences and I became an advisor to His Excellency the Governor of Sagia who was uh, Brahim Umar at that time. And then we became a ministry and I was an advisor to His Excellency um, uh, Minister Khaled al-Farah, who is the current Minister of Investment. So I was in health throughout up until I think this was, I left the Ministry of Investment in 2021. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took a year, not off, but I was working. Uh, but I worked in events. Now you're probably going to ask me, health, events, <laughs> there's no correlation. <laughs> no, it does. <laughs> there's, 
there is no correlation, but again, I think it goes back to um, my skill set, um, the things that I've acquired in terms of um, you know leadership, in terms of being versatile, in terms of being agile, um, and just me being um, adaptable and open and receptive to doing new things. Again, there are challenges, right? Um, it, it, you know, events. I was at the National Events Center. I was um, the head of events management and the head of business development. It's very interesting. I had interesting clients like WWE, right? Um, and I, you know, had other interesting, you know, clients who I worked with as well. Um, and I think people who know me really well will say, "Besma events." Um, there's something wrong, you know, there's just something <laughs> not right about, about this picture, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. Right. And then I, you know, I um, joined the research development innovation authority thereafter. But I think, you know, when I reflect on my childhood, um, I was always a person that um, wanted to stretch my limits. And to me, the, impossible was possible. And I'll, 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 I'll give you an example of what I mean. So I grew up watching the Bionic Woman and Wonder Woman. Okay. And the Bionic Woman, you know, has superpowers and she can jump and she can not fly, but she can jump really high. And she can, you know, she takes out the bad guys and stuff. So I used to, as a child, I grew up in California. Um, used to stand at the, 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 the stairs of our kind of um, uh, fa our family room. So there were stairs, steps that would take you to, to, to the garden, to the backyard. And I would stand at the top and I would remember, um, you know, raising my arms up and down exactly like uh, <laughs> Bionic Woman, right? Uh, Lindsay Wagner. Lindsay Wagner. Lindsay Wagner, I think. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember her name. Okay. <laughs> and I would jump down and I would think, wow, I'm bionic woman. And then I do the same thing. I'd be at the bottom of the steps and I'd, you know, lift my arms, you know, and I do exactly what she would do. And I would jump back up. Um so would, you, would you would you make the sound effect? <laughs> no, I didn't make the sound effect. And then Wonder Woman, you know, I twirl around thinking, yeah. you know, I'm going to get into my costume like Wonder Woman. Obviously, I didn't get into my costume like Wonder right. Woman, right? <laughs> but, you know, as a child, I don't think I realized that that was part of, you know, uh, uh, those were characteristics that um, there were, I think, traits or attributes that I had as an individual in terms of, um, being bold, being ambitious, right? Nothing is impossible, um, you know? Uh, and, and I only realized that as an adult, obviously, you know, as a child to me, I was just having, I guess, having fun some, somehow, you know, pretending that I was uh, Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman. Um, so, so I think a lot of, you know, you know, things that I've done in my career and they've been out of my comfort zone, Although, you know, I, I tend to be more of an introvert. Um, I'm not really an extrovert. And sometimes I can be, you know, in the middle. But I've never, you know, said no to, 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 to challenges. And I guess that's just part of who I am. Briefly, you, you in that long, in, 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 in recounting your many, many experiences, you've neglected to mention your illustrious broadcasting career. <laughs> So yes, I was um, 
I uh, was on Saudi TV. Um, this was in 1996, um, Saudi TV Channel 2. Um, I was the first Saudi woman uh, TV newscaster at that time. Um, I started off opening up the channel. So if you remember, our weekends were Thursdays or Fridays. Yeah. Um, so on the weekend, on Thursday, I think it was, I would spend, I don't know how many hours at the um, television uh, station, Saudi television station. And I would open the channel and do news and brief. It was all live. Um, and then I just became the uh, the news. Uh, I used to do the news in English, the 8 p.m. news. Um, I think it was twice or three times a week. I can't remember now how many times a week. Um, and my last appearance was just before I went to Brown um, to do my first master's, uh, which was in January, in January 1997. Uh, but it was just a hobby. You know, <laughs> I'm not, I was never trained. <laughs> Just a hobby, but um, yes, that was that was many many light years ago. Well, that's we have, amazing. It is it is fun. We, that, we, so we had you know Dr. Mahmoud Khan, who was CEO of the Global Health Span Summit, and you're familiar with that. We were there, and I, and this is in parallel to you. You know, he's so much more than a uh, an academic. Um, you know, he's a, he's a spokesman, he's a, a marketing guru, uh, you know, he's, a, he's an engaging, personable, uh, you know, representative of the, of the initiative. I mean, and likewise with you, I mean, what you're trying to do is so much more than emerging technologies and the job couldn't be done by someone who was, you know, for lack of a better word, just, you know, a fully immersed in only that. Yeah, I mean the requirements in terms of policy development, management, events, you know, coordination, you know, dealing with, engaging with with uh, people from all over the world as well as people throughout many sectors. I mean, just look at your board, you know, uh, you know, academic and, and mini- uh, institutions and ministries throughout the, country, the Saudi Arabia. So, uh, you know, if you look at it in that context, you're perfectly suited for this job. Well, thank you. Thank you, Richard. I mean, I, I I enjoy what I do. I really do. I enjoy engaging with um, the national and the global community. Um, you know, I believe I'm a great um, spokesperson or I'm a, I'm a great ambassador, let's say, great ambassador for, you know, for KSA and for what we're doing, you know, uh, in relation to uh, Vision 2030. Um, and it's just, it's just very exhilarating. You know, I find I'm, you know, I'm, I've always been a very, um, um, I think, dependable and responsible person, you know, when it comes to to work and, and, and career um, and very motivated. I, I tend to motivate myself. Um, I don't need, you know, others to to motivate me. Um, and, you know, I think if you're committed to what you're doing and you have that dedication and you just you you get a kick out of it and i guess i do you know somehow i do you do get a kick out of it but i think more importantly um i like to help others um and i you know i've done that along you know my career and i think it's just it's just nice when you hear someone you know thanking you for something that you've done that you've actually forgotten about you know um and i've had that i think countless uh countless times but um, yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, the best is hopefully yet to come, um, mm-hmm. you know, for, for, for all of us. 
Dr. Basma, one more question before we close here. So you mentioned that the center um, is in Riyadh. Is it where is it located in Riyadh? Is it in CAST, the CAST campus? And I asked because I visited a few weeks ago and CAST looks like it has had a huge like steroid injection like right into it. There's a brand new huge building. They've got the garage that's now been set up. There's a there's a whole new energy over there. I mean, where, where is that look? Where's your office? Like, where is it? And, and, and is it in CAST? Because I know that that's sort of like a new hub for this stuff now. So I love the uh, the description you used, the steroid injection <laughs> or that tall building. So it's a tall <laughs> building, the Innovation Tower. Okay, the Innovation uh, Tower. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, we're in, we're in the Innovation Tower. So CAST has undergone a transformation. So it is a national lab and a science and technology park. Um, hence, we've got the garage, which is a deep tech incubator slash accelerator. Um, and in the Innovation Tower, we, there are companies, there's uh, there are government entities, there's, you know, us, the C4IRKSA, the Research Development Innovation Authority is also located in the Innovation Tower. So it is, um, it's actually, CACS is also part of the International Associ Association for Science Parks, IASP. They recently became a part of that. So we're there, fifth floor, um, that's where you'll find us. Um, we, uh, um, you know, have, uh, have great space, great offices. Um, because we are hosted at CAXT, um, hence um, His Excellency Dr. Munir Al-Jasuki, uh, president of CAXT, is the chairman of, uh, of our center, uh, of, of our board. Yeah, it's an impressive building, um, really bright white, kind of has the, the California feel, which probably feels like home for you. Dr. Basma Albu Hairan, Managing Director, Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution of Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much for your time. This was a really wonderful discussion. Thank you, Lucian. Thank you, Richard. Um, thank you again for having me. Um, and I've enjoyed um, the hour or so that we spent together. That was our conversation with Dr. Basma Al-Buhairan from the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution of Saudi Arabia. Thank you, Dr. Basma, for your time. We loved that conversation. That was one, Richard, when it just finished, we texted each other and we were like, that was terrific. So it was excellent. You, and 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 it was great for her to uh to join us um it's just so neat people doing interesting things happen to be friends mm -hmm. and there's a lot of that right now in saudi arabia so many people we know that have been tasked because they're smart and capable and with tasks with really meaningful uh roles and this is one of them and very cool let's get to yella yella sorry in a minute I forgot how I did that. How did I used to do that? Uh, well, that's the part of it. It's like Vision 2030. You just make a few adjustments, you know, and it becomes its own thing over time. <laughs> Saudi in a minute. Um, yellow number one, Saudi Arabia's capital Riyadh was chosen to host a 2030 World Expo following its bid that focused on shaping a prosperous and sustainable future beating out Rome and the South Korean port city of Busan for an event expected to draw millions of visitors. Members of the Paris-based Bureau International des Expositions chose Riyadh with the majority of 119 out of 165 votes during a closed-door meeting in the suburb of Issy-les-Molignons. Busan got 29 votes, and Rome came in last with 17. Wow. Rome. 
Rome bringing <laughs> up Rome weird. getting getting destroyed by the Saudi bid. I mean, <laughs> we talked about this before it was like going to be official, but we kind of had a good feeling. I think I made a bold prediction that that would be something that <laughs> definitely would be happening. Um, and, and this kind of comes on the back of the news of the World Cup uh, coming to Riyadh. That isn't official yet, but there is no one else bidding for it. So unless... I think they it just, is official, isn't it? Did they make the official announcement? Well, I think because because the way they set it up, they announced at the beginning of October and said you have 30 days to get in your intention to bid. And so Australia, when that deadline came at end of end of October, Australia said we're not going to bid. So there's only one bidder. Right. So, but I think they need to like award it. Right. It's it's, oh, it's like de facto that you know gotcha. whatever. Gotcha. Um, anyway, it's going to happen. <laughs> Vision 2030 is now Vision 2034 because we got the World Cup coming. <laughs> just kidding. But um, just as a reaction to this, um, I was in Caft having dinner with some friends, and as the announcement was coming out. The gentleman that I were that I was with, their phones like I don't want to say like lighted up because I feel like or lit up because that's not people use that all the time. But it, it was like WhatsApp, 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 and just was like a string of messages like, "Oh my gosh, we got the expo! Like it's official!" And it was really cool because um, coming back from CAF that night from dinner, there was a huge fireworks show in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it was in CAF. It was at our hotel. Richard at the Alphys Elite, um, excuse me, at the um, Four Seasons at, at the Kingdom T Tower. This is a huge deal for Saudi Arabia. There's just, just to put it out there. And now it's on Saudi Arabia to execute. And I feel like they're going to knock it out of the park. Just going out on a limb with that. Well, it's a, it's been a priority and I love it in many ways. There's, there's the prestige aspect. There's the economic aspect. I mean, um, you know, Early, early Minister of Tourism, Ahmed Khatib, said Saudi Arabia will create as many as 250,000 jobs during that expo. They're, they're expecting close to 40 million people, you know, potentially the second largest expo ever. Um, you know, uh, they're obviously planning to spend a lot of money. I think the whole site will be north of Riyadh, as everything else is. Um, but, uh, you know, so you have the prestige showcase aspect of it. You have the um, economic uh, aspect of it. I think it's really nice because it, it, it maintains the, the sort of emotional psychological momentum of the vision 2030 has attained. I think a lot of people, a lot of Saudis are excited about what's going on. Youth, especially there's obviously always concerns about, you know, you know, jobs and inflation and quality of life, all these things that, you know, pervade our everyday existence. But overall, there's a lot of excitement. It's a lot of momentum. There was build up to this. We're putting ourselves in it. We're throwing a hat in this ring. And for it to come back successfully, I think is great because it adds to the momentum and it keeps that sort of string of things to look forward to, you know, intact, you know, the vision 2030. I mean, I'm sorry, the Expo 2030, uh, World Cup 2034, you know, and, in you know, Asian, you know, Asian winter games, 29, Asian games, 27, you know, all these things you can hang your hat on as you're going forward and the country can sort of coalesce around and invest accordingly. Uh, I just think it's really a nice sort of marker on the road to where they're headed. Mm -hmm. 
the excitement, especially on social media and especially on LinkedIn, at least for me, it, like everyone was like, this is so awesome. And it is yeah. awesome. It is really cool. And like you said, it sort of is like, a, you know, it fits into that story where you have these these things to look forward to and to work toward. And that is really awesome. And so, yeah, I mean, um, I it, and obviously the video went of of the the committee that was, you know, representing Saudi Arabia. And I believe Adel Al-Jaber was there. There were a bunch of other, frankly, heavy hitters that were involved with this, the, the sort of tallying of the votes. There's like a room. I don't know how to describe it, but that got sent to me like a thousand times. Um, it is cool that it's like the moment where they realized they were going to win. Anyway, super awesome. I think, Richard, we should go to it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> pretty sure I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah, I would that would be yes. Hopefully we'll be, you know, hopefully we'll be still doing this and we'll, we'll be in town during that period because it's a six month thing. Absolutely. We should go. Mm -hmm. And that would fit the new rule we have of having uh, really prestigious events for our, our live shows until we get better from the technical side. Uh, but that is really cool. You can check out like all the stuff they're planning at Riyadh Expo 2030.sa. If you're seeing this as a segment or if you're listening to this, it's, it is a really impressive website. It's very, very cool. Um, Yella number two, Saudi Arabia's five official giga projects are expected to award more than $50 billion of construction contracts by the end of 2023, according to Mead's Saudi giga projects tracker compiled using data from regional projects tracker Mead projects. As of the 6th of December, the five official giga projects had awarded $49.8 billion of contracts just $200 million short of the $50 billion mark. The $49.8 billion total for the five schemes represents about 16% of the $310 billion of contract awards made across all clients and sectors in Saudi Arabia since the initial Giga project contracts were awarded in May 2017. Uh, so actually, this was, this was from Mead. Uh, an article written by our friend Colin Foreman, who we should have back on the show because he's awesome. Yeah, he rules. Um, uh, yeah, and exciting. I mean, it's not much to add. I will. The, the article's really good. Uh, it is interesting, and we talk about momentum all the time and, and that sort of thing. So, in terms of, of in 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 twenty twenty one, nine billion dollars of contracts were awarded on Giga projects. In twenty twenty two, twenty six billion dollars. Twenty twenty three, now fifty billion. So you can see everything's ramping up. Everything's moving along, and a lot of these Giga projects you're seeing changes on the ground. Um, you know, and there's percentage of completion rates on on them. So, you know, the contract activity is up. And of course, these awards are not only meaningful in terms of Vision 2030 projects, but they're meaningful in terms of economy. I mean, these are these are awards to to businesses, you know, you know the majority of them local. So it's really pumping money into the economy, which is a good thing. Um, yellow number three. Uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia will start formal talks next week to resume direct scheduled flights between Tehran and Riyadh and other cities. An Iranian official told the state-affiliated news agency uh, ILNA on, uh, recently, regular flights would be another step towards restoring ties between the two Middle Eastern rivals. Uh, a Chinese-mediated agreement in March restored diplomatic relations after years of tension that threatened the security of the entire region and fueled conflicts in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. 
Yeah, remember how I just said I wanted credit for saying Saudi Arabia would get the Expo 2030? Well, I was completely wrong when this came out. I doubted that this would stick. Here we are approaching a year later and things are still moving in the right direction for Iran and Saudi Arabia. It is amazing to see. I don't have a ton to add. This is You just said, uh, Richard, you said in, in response, you're like, well, there's not a lot to add to this. There's actually a ton to add to this. This is a complex and uh, really interesting amazing storyline in a very busy year for Saudi Arabia. But this is, um, I, I don't personally have a ton to add to this. It's, it's just very interesting. I, I think it's, you know, the, the, the agreement is in March. And I think the, Saudi Arabia is no less skeptical or cautious about Iran uh, and probably vice versa than they were before. It's just, you know, diplomatic relations have begun in talks. But this sort of thing, people to people thing is interesting and meaningful. Um, so, you know, if you're going to have more Iranians coming to Saudi and more Saudis going to Iran, excellent, good thing. And if, a couple other things have happened recently. So uh, Iran recently introduced visa fee travel for citizens of more than 30 countries, including, of course, the GC state, GCC state. So if you want to go to Iran, it's easier to get there if you're in these 30 countries. Uh, also, later this week uh, or next week, Iranian pilgrims will start arriving in Saudi Arabia for Umrah and in, in, in Mecca and Medina for Umrah after an eight-year hiatus. So, you know, it'll be a small group first, 550 pilgrims, but then, you know, it'll increase. And uh, again, uh, those three things, you know, the flights, the visas, the, the pilgrims, these are people-to-people things. And, you know, that brings... Uh, that that tight, you know, that it helps relationships and it 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 binds to, uh, countries closer. I don't know, you know, there's always political issues that you maybe overrule anything, but these are things that weren't happening last year. None of this was happening, you know, eight months ago. Um, and you know, there's a there's a there's a five point seven million person backlog for Iranians who want to do the Umrah pilgrimage. So you you know you sign up to do it. So eight years worth of this. They're all not all coming for sure, but, uh, you know, the demand is there. So, um, you know, it's going to engender goodwill if some of these can start coming. Yeah, totally. And yet you also have a region that is very uh, delicate right now. You have the Houthis who are just completely interested in launching missiles anywhere they can around Saudi Arabia to get to Israel. There's a lot that can go wrong. And so... I've learned <laughs> to not make predictions in well, this space. Well, no, no. I, I think the instinct that we have, I think it's a correct one. Nobody, you know, has, you know, has, uh, is, you know, looking at this through rose-colored gases, you know. Uh, these are operational aspects of a, of a rapprochement that, you know, right now is very cautious and very, um it's not a full-on rapprochement. I know the Saudis don't trust the Iranians, but they really want to de-escalate and they really like their help with, you know, trying to trying to throttle back some of their proxies in the region. So, so we'll see how far that goes. It's one of those things that you know we're we're getting along just fine until the next issue, and then we'll see how that issue goes, and then the next issue. So this is not a. I think this is just a let's try this out. 
which is totally the smart move for both of them, but especially for Saudi Arabia, in my opinion. I mean, you know, you can get a lot oh, yeah. more done by having frank conversations, restoring relations, you know, open dialogue, all of that. Yella yeah. number four, pivoting a bit here. Lionel Messi's Inter Miami will play two matches oh. in Saudi Arabia. Do I have it wrong again? I think I think yeah, the Messi. next one is is the John Rom one. So I have Messi Rom. And oh, then, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. My bad. My bad. Okay. Sorry. All right. Yeah. No, no, sorry. Well, I'll cut that. See, it's a little rusted. You haven't done this, you know? <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> no, it's all good. Yellow number four, Lionel Messi's Inter-Miami will play two matches in Saudi Arabia early, early next year, including one against familiar foe Cristiano Ronaldo and his club Al Nasser. The Major League Soccer team said on Monday, the Riyadh Season Cup, a three-team round-robin tournament, is part of the team's first international tour, which will also include stops in El Salvador and Hong Kong. Miami are set to take on Al Halal at the Kingdom Arena in July, excuse me, in Riyadh on January 29th, before facing Al Nasser at the same venue on February 1st. And Richard, as you know, I will be in Riyadh at that time. I am hoping to go to at least one of these matches. So I'm putting that out there right now and I'm gonna make it happen if anybody wants to help. <laughs> yeah. It would be awesome. I tried to. I was going to try and get to the Al Halal Al Nasser match when I was in Riyadh, and that was tough to do. I wasn't able to do it. Um, uh, this is very cool, the Riyadh Season Cup, and you know it's it's you know showpiece, and, and but you know it seems fitting though that you know we've got uh, Al Halal and Al Nasser who are sort of glitzy glitzy in the in the Saudi professional league and you you throw in Ittihad which is which you know won the league last year but doesn't have the same sort of I mean I, I think about Ittihad I mean it's the oldest club in the in the country and it's 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 has legacy and everything and but not it doesn't seem like it's a glam thing uh Inter Miami is perfect for Al and Al Nasser <laughs> you know because Inter Miami is sort of the glam of the MLS uh and which is pretty cool. And so I, I think it's great they're doing this. I tried to look at tickets. There are no tickets. The, the, the event is not listed as one you can get tickets for yet. But uh, I'd really like to go. It um, would be cool. That'd be, that'd I, be got so a, um, I got Sam, uh, an awesome K calf uh Jersey, you know, calf across because you oh, know, got some such a towel because yeah. is, is a sponsor of Al, Al Nasser. Uh, so it was really cool. Jersey. Um, that is awesome. Did he love it? Well, it's for Christmas. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, Sam, Sam, if you're listening to this, cover your ears. Yeah. This is what's cool about this is, you know, Messi will be playing in Saudi Arabia, but only for two matches, but I mean, this is going to be something that the world knows about, and it's probably going to be pretty. I mean, I'm sure that this is going to cost money for Saudi Arabia to put on, but I mean, this is just the latest in a series of stories uh, about Saudi Arabia's sporting ambitions and desire to develop a local sporting economy, an international sporting economy. And, you know, this is, I mean, this already on Monday when this was announced sort of crowded out and we have ways doing the newsletter to filter through some stories that dominate the headlines because otherwise if you're just casually looking and this is the advantage of the review is that if you're 
casually looking for news on Saudi Arabia, one story often just completely crowds out the first four or five pages. And this was no exception. I mean, everyone was talking about this. So thought about doing this as my one big thing, but I don't have anything to add other than the fact that I'm determined to go. I've asked Abdul Rahman, our friend, to go, and he didn't respond. So I'm going to put some pressure on him uh, to go with me. I know he's not a big soccer guy, football, uh, but I'd love to do that with him, and we'll we'll see. But yeah, hope to do something on this in a few weeks would be sweet. Absolutely. Um, yellow number four. Uh, this December seventh, John Rahm. Joined the Live Golf League, leaving the PGA Tour. The move is considered a major coup for Live Golf, which launched two years ago. Rom is a two-time major winner and the world's third-ranked player. The PGA Tour suspended Rom for signing with Live Golf, which is funded by the Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, which some of you may know. Some reports say Rom is being paid over $300 million to join Live. Rom has decided, decided to avoid public events until February. Well... I mean, this would have been a, you know, I forgot about this <laughs> until you started <laughs> reading this. This was like a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, the, the, something like this, this last summer even would have been something that we, you know, really focused on. And anyway, yeah, the biggest contract yet for a player to live. Rom is probably the most consistent, consistently the best golfer right now i would say he's just always a threat in majors and other tournaments alike he is he's no yeah no one wants to chase him and nobody wants him breathing down their neck he's the winner of the masters as you noted i mean uh last year's masters boy what does this mean for for live and its pga merger i mean what's up with that don't they the deadline's coming soon yeah, I mean the agreement was that they, you know, it was they'd have an agreement by December thirty first, and I think this is, I think this is wild and so interesting because, because you know, all the news is PGA is PGA is like the Fenway Sports Group, so PGA is looking for other investors to come in and invest with them. You know, I don't think it's in lieu of PIF, but you know, it, it muddies the water. Certainly, certainly if you're PIF. Um, and and to me, the fact that they're able to attract other investors uh, gives complete and utter validation to the Saudi assessment of the situation, which was it was under under uh, you know it was just underinvested and undermarketed, and you know things were left on the table, and the PGA was not doing a good job promoting the game of golf globally, and um, you know which is why live and one of the reasons they came as well as prestige and and also promotion of sport at home. Um, so this is interesting that Liv hasn't stood still. I mean, this is a big coup. This is a, this is a, a, a this is bigger than anything that's happened before because Rom is in his prime. Uh, you know, Kepka is a good get, but he was kind of a, he wasn't a darling of the PGA. He wasn't beloved on the PGA. You know, Rom is well-known, well-liked, recently fantastic, ongoing, fantastic. Um, and we'll probably bring some folks with them. So, the, you know, the PIF sort of has said, okay, I, you know, we, maybe we'll reach agreement. Maybe we won't. We're going to have a standalone league anyway, and we're going to continue to augment it. Kind of a bold and brassy move. It is, and it really strengthens their position in any sort of last-minute negotiations. Whatever the, whatever the snag is or snags are in those conversations, all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, well, we also just got your best player, so what's taking you so long? If that's even how – we don't even really know. But 
What's also interesting is as as you're making that really good point about that, Richard, is, um, you know, uh, I mean, at what point can live become more watchable than the PGA? And we, we went together to see a live event live. I can't imagine going to see a PGA event after that and preferring to go to PGA events over live. Live was super fun live, but for some reason, it's just not attracting the TV audience. But at some point, if you have all of the best players in the world playing for live and none of the best players in the world playing for PGA, I mean, who's going to really watch the PGA over live? So you wonder if it's like a balance tipping thing where now that Rom is doing it, you have enough storylines and live to make that more watchable on any given weekend that it happens because viewership is still way down for, for live versus PGA. So, I mean, this was, this was a huge deal. Um, pretty cool. Good for good for live um, and not good for PGA. Well, and, and it's a turn for for Rom because Rom doesn't like you know he was going to stick with the PGA, but I think when when the PGA had, you know signed this tentative agreement with Piff, he sort of said, okay, if they're in play, then you know they're, they're, if they're play in play for the PGA, they're in play for me. He doesn't like the fifty four uh, whole such set set up, which I think is a real problem in terms of world rankings. Um, uh, he likes the team project, team aspect, but this is interesting. And, and we've talked about this, how far this has come in terms of public perception. And we're talking about Royal McElroy, who was the spokesperson for anti-live. And um, this is what McElroy said about Rom doing it. Um, this is his quote. Is it disappointing to me? Yes. But the landscape of golf changed on June 6th when the framework agreement was announced. And I think because of that, it made the jump from the PGA tour to live a little easier for guys. They let the first guys really take the heat, and then this framework agreement legitimized, legitimized basically what Liv was trying to do. We referred to this earlier. When I think it's, then I think it made it easier now if that's really what you want to do, unquote. Um, so I think the players have come around. Uh, as he has, you know, Evan McElroy said, you know, it's this legitimized. You know the issue. The issue is going to continue to be, especially of players of Rom's caliber, as the majors. But he's got a he's got a free pass to all four of the majors for at least four years, because mm-hmm. uh, he's won them or uh, you know can finish very highly in them. So he's good for the majors, and that's the thing about PGA. I mean, the, the PGA has a legacy. I mean, I love the majors; they're awesome. You know, you know the Kemper Open in Peoria is not a big, huge deal for me. Uh, and I think that's the problem the PGA has is it's, um, you know, uplifting its marquee events. Obviously it's got the FedEx cup and other things, but anyway, all very interesting. And like I said, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brassy move by Saudi to do this live. Yeah. And if you're John Rahm, I mean, you'd be foolish to not take that money. So like nobody is hating on him really, you know, you know, that money is apparently the money is somewhere between, so his his career earnings are fifty seven million on the PGA. I think the money is more than three hundred million over three years, with bonuses pushing that number to more than five hundred million, five hundred fifty million. This is not exact. There's a lot of speculation, but this is a number. Um, the PGA's entire purse for the twenty twenty three season was four hundred sixty million. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, so, that's a lot of money. Who wouldn't do that? 
Absolutely. Uh, it was interesting hearing him say, well, I'm doing it for my family. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, <laughs> 57 million is enough for any family. But, you know, yeah, that's hey, true. you're doing it for your that's great, true. great, great grandson, John <laughs> Rom the fifth. <laughs> you don't remember Latrell Spirewell? Remember Latrell Spirewell? Yes, I do. And I, do, I remember play. the name. Well, he I think he played for the Knicks and then Golden State. But anyway, he did a holdout. I think he was making $16 million a year or whatever. This was back 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And, um, you know, he was doing some, I got to I can't have my family on the street. I got to do, you know, we, we, you, I got to, I got to do it for my family. Cause you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's all about perspective. Yeah. Well, John Rom's family is in a really good spot now. So congrats yeah. to them and their success. Even Yellow, better. <laughs> Yellow six, number six. Families across Saudi Arabia are preparing for winter, which for many means outdoor picnics and gatherings. These often involve using charcoal for grilling and warmth, but this traditional practice has taken a toll on the environment. However, the kingdom's versatile landscape has paved the way for an innovative uh, industrial substitute for this. A natural alternative known as gift or olive pit charcoal has emerged in local markets, providing a sustainable solution while supporting local farmers and olive oil producers. <laughs> I don't have a lot on this. I will say we should do a full episode on Jeff. <laughs> well, well, you did. We did some research on it. Interesting. That was made. Um, I did not realize that there are 30 million olive trees in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> covering 7,300 hectares. So this was a, uh, this was, you know, there's so much going on. You learn something new every day. And I didn't know about Jift. <laughs> what's, what's amazing about this is there actually has been a lot on uh, the firewood industry in Saudi Arabia because, I mean, camping is huge, especially in the winter. And you go out and people were basically wow. cutting down trees and removing trees and using local firewood. And so for a long time, the Saudi, like they have a Saudi environmental security force, which is like, I guess the national parks rangers, but maybe with some more teeth because um, there was a lot of local firewood being used in places like, you know, outside of Riyadh and places that people like to camp. Um, but they're really trying to cut down on logging, um, anybody cutting any trees down and they want you to be importing the firewood instead of cutting down what's naturally growing. And so what's kind of cool about this is like, this is now a new possibly developing industry uh, for this because Saudis are just not going to stop camping. And you go there in the winter, especially, and people are outside in the desert, like everywhere outside of the city. It's just like what people do. And it, it is super fun. Um, it is. What I love about mm. this is I have this discussion with my family and my parents all the time because I'm always building, I love building fires, but when I do, I use starter logs or pieces of starter logs, which essentially are uh, ground up sawdust and they're kind of pushed back together into the shape of a log. And right. then they, they mix it with petroleum products. So they burn for three hours. So when you make a fire, the fire lasts for three hours and you can put logs on it, but you're not like maintaining a fire. You've made a fire and that's it. And, you know, they're always like, oh, you don't need to use a starter log. You can just build a regular fire. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm I don't want to be over here every 10 minutes kind of adjusting the fire. Like, this is the fire. This is the build. Um, and this, I love these, these starter logs because they just, you know, they, they look the same. 
they're actually more green. They're not creating as much smoke. And yeah, so I mean, this is really cool. I don't know. We should, I wonder who we can talk to about GIFT <laughs> and who is, who is pioneering this space. Well, so GIFT charcoal is made through a slow drying of agricultural residues, then fermented dry, shaped into blocks or molds, and burned in special ovens. Results is an eco-friendly alternative charcoal. Mm -hmm. and, it is, and it's considered superior to traditional charcoal. Longer burning time, widespread, ado widespread adoption in the kingdom will require proper ovens. But yeah, it would be very cool. If, you know, these things could obviously burn over an open fire pit. Um, I wonder if they have an odor, but it, you know, there's a picture in the article about how they're made. It's kind of cool. But mm -hmm. again, I had no idea about the, you know, gift or, or the extent of olive oils. I mean, olive trees in the, in the kingdom. They yeah. tend to be in the North, Northern regions of Juf and uh, Tabuk, often referred to as the kingdom's olive basket. Again, I did not know there was an olive basket in Saudi Arabia. You see, 115 episodes in, at the very end, we're learning stuff. <laughs> and uh, so enriching. That is su super cool. Yeah, I didn't know that about the olive trees either. I know that the climate is pretty good because it's fairly dry and sunny. I know that I can't get olive trees to grow at my house for the exact reasons uh, in the opposite that I just described. And I also know that there are several olive trees in Riyadh specifically that have been imported to like the Ritz-Carlton, for example, in Riyadh has a really old olive tree in the courtyard, which I go see if I ever can. It's so cool that they just dug it up and moved it. Um, but I did not know that there's an olive area, an olive producing area. And Richard, they also, this didn't even make the top nine stories this week that we included, but they're now launching an agro, the PIF is launching an agritourism company and brand to sort of allow locals and foreigners to come explore some of these areas so wow that's a whole nother thing dan company and dan. we'll go off on one more tangent or amount of no maybe there's six more um <clears throat> speaking of interesting things at hotels did you notice at the four seasons that we were on Riyadh that salvador dali's melting clock sculpture is right there in the lobby yes i did and there were like people taking photos in front of it and i was like what's the deal that's not the like what is that you know <laughs> it's really cool I I didn't realize two one I didn't realize it was original two I didn't realize the original was that big, um, yeah that's pretty amazing. That was a really nice hotel oh, yeah. with amazing views of the yes. city, which was it was just really cool and a, a really great event from Evolution. I mean, just just was awesome. We'll have some more content coming out from that event in the next uh, few days, really on our LinkedIn page, especially and, and on YouTube, other interviews we did that we thought were fairly interesting uh, with other people from the event. Um, so they, that was great. And that was why, as we discussed at the beginning of the episode, that we were not fully, uh, we didn't, we missed a week, I guess it was, we still had an episode the week before 114, but that was kind of a special edition. So anyway, we're back to the normal format here for a long time. So a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess Christmas week, we'll, we have to make a plan for that. But uh, yeah, but we should be back. Uh, I think I our plan was to take it off. I don't have a guest right now. Well, so are we, what's this, the 14th already? Whoa, <laughs> got to get some shopping done. I mean, you already <laughs> got Sam covered with your, your, your I jersey. Sam, I should have. I got Sam covered I, I with one done. thing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good one, Richard. Let's talk uh, off the air and give people a break from us. We'll see everyone next week.
Awesome. Another good one. Good to be back with you, Lucian. Good to be back. Well, I guess, by the way, it was fantastic to be together in person to do this. That in, was cool. Yeah. That was really neat. That was cool. That was definitely a unique experience for us. Um, we're always doing it via the internet. And so, yeah, that was, you know, it was definitely interesting trying to do an in-person production. I feel like it turned out pretty good considering we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, but it is good back that to was... be back in this old setup here. That was a kick save and a beauty for Lucian technologically. Nobody will ever know. And that's the way it's no supposed to be. Ever Boy, that was that was <laughs> hanging by a, a a thread. It was. We were maxing out storage space on cell phone. I mean, it was a we were, you know, phones. it was a good exercise in problem solving. So that was uh <laughs> it's always good to stay sharp in that arena. Uh yep, see everybody next week.